0: Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would open our eyes so that we could see you afresh today, so that we could see ourselves afresh today. God, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you give us insight and wisdom so that we can be your faithful people in this world? And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So this morning we are concluding our series in the life of Elijah. Come on, like, I, I don't even I don't know how to like respond to that. But uh, so we've been in a series over the last actually eight weeks, looking together at the stories of Elijah and Elisha, and I have this book on my shelf, uh, a book I, I've used throughout this series by an Old Testament scholar whose name is Walter Brueggemann, and it's a collection of uh, essays regarding Elijah and Elisha, and the title of the essays are uh, "Testimony to Otherwise." And what he means by that is that in these narratives, we get a window, we get a witness, we get a testimony to an other way of being in this world than the conventional ways so many of us are used to. Elijah bears witness to a way of being that is marked by trust in the gracious provision of God in the middle of a world of scarcity. Even as Elijah was provided with bread and meat from the ravens by the brook Cherith, uh, we, are, uh, we witness Elijah discovering hope for God's life in the midst of a world that are marked out by the forces of death, even as God's will for life overturned the power of death on behalf of that widow from Seraphith. Uh, we see something uh, about this truth that we can live faithful in a world of compromise, whether by opting out and challenging the system like Elijah or by subversively staying in the system like Obadiah. Uh, we saw that we can build our lives and our identity not on the idols of our culture, but rather on the God who answers by fire. And then we learned that God meets us often in the cave of our despair when we feel all alone even as he also invites us to challenge the unjust, tyrannical kings who take fields from peasants and rob them of their means of production and leaves them in generational poverty. And we discovered last week that we can trust God that there is a power at work in this world to cleanse the deep leprosy of our souls from the story of Naaman. And this morning, we're gonna enter into the last and the final of the stories of Elijah. And uh, this story begins in a war room in Syria. So I don't know if it looked like this, but I thought this was super cool. But uh, the story opens, and the Syrian king has called together his National Security Council, and they are plotting secretive raids into the land of Israel so that they can take more territory and expand their borders. But there's a problem. Because at every turn, the armies of of Syria are foiled because Elijah keeps acting as informant to the king of Israel about every place where the raid will come next. And he marshals his troops, gets there, and the king of Syria is like, wait a second, I thought this was a secret. What are they doing there? You know? And uh, look at the text. Uh, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. And thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there on more than one occasion. Now, naturally, the Syrian king doesn't like this at all, and he's deeply disturbed by this breach in his security intelligence and the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called together his servants, and he said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of, of Israel? And, uh, you know, he's paranoid, as kings will be, and he suspects that there's a traitor in his midst, and so he kind of wants to smoke him out. And, uh, but uh, notice one of the servants says, uh, look, none, my lord, O king. Look king, none of us, you can trust us, we're reliable here, you know? But he says, but Elijah, the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that that you speak in your bedroom. He says, look, my sources have told me that the informant is the prophet in Israel and he knows what you're doing and he knows your conversations that you're having in your bedroom and he tells it to the king of Israel, aren't you glad there's not a prophet in Sierra Madre who can tell the secrets that you're saying in your bedroom? And uh, so the king says, look, we can't have that. We need to apprehend this prophet. And uh, it's at this point that someone speaks up, and he says, look, our sources tell us that the prophet that you want is in Dothan. And he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night, and they surrounded the city. And so he says, let's go. And he gathers together the horses and the chariots and a great army, and he goes to Dothan in the night when nobody is expecting it, and he surrounds the entire city with his multitudinous army, and now the, can pan, the camera pans from the armies of Syria into the little house of Elijah as the sun now is coming up. Look what it says. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, now stop there. It says when the servant of the man of God, now the original Hebrew, it could be translated when the assistant to the man of God. And so what we're talking about here is the assistant to the regional prophet. And so this is something akin to the assistant uh, to the regional manager, Dwight Schrute. So, so the servant is something like the Dwight Schrute of Elijah. And he's there and uh, he wakes up and he's making the prophet eggs and toast or something like that. And their breakfast is rudely interrupted because he hears the this, this sound And the ground is shaking and and he's alarmed. And so he goes and he looks out the door and he sees out the door hundreds of, of, of Syrian soldiers. And then he turns and he looks out the window behind him and he sees hundreds of Syrian soldiers and out the other window. And he's like, we are surrounded by horses and chariots and the entire army of the Syrians. And so he does what all of us would do in this situation. He freaks out. He says, oh, my master, what are we gonna do? We're surrounded now look at Elijah's response, I love it. Elijah calmly looks up from his plate of eggs and toast and he says, Dwight, relax. You know, they're outnumbered. He says, they're outnumbered. He says, for, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He says, don't worry, you, we, they're outnumbered. There's more with us than with them. And, and, and the servant looks outside the window, he sees the hundreds of, of soldiers out there, and then he looks back in the room, and he sees him and the prophet. And then he looks out, and he sees the hundreds, and he looks back, and he says, him and the prophet. And he's like, clearly, Elijah, math is not your strength. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're a prophet, not a mathematician, you know, let's stay in your lane. <laughs> and look, he says, look, I may be only an assistant to the regional prophet, but I can count and I can see. And what I see is this. There is a massive military force outside, and there are two unarmed prophets inside, and we are hopelessly and helplessly outnumbered. Now, what happens next is strange, and it's wonderful, and it takes our breath away. I love it. Elijah doesn't take time to argue with his servant. He doesn't take time to correct his servant, you know, he says, "Look, no, he doesn't. He doesn't argue with him. Instead, he prays. He prays that his servant might see differently." And then Elijah prayed and said, "O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see." So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elijah, and so he prays, and immediately the young servant is given prophetic vision, and what was previously invisible is now made visible. What he could not see, he now sees. And what he now sees is that the hills all around Samaria are occupied with horses and chariots of fire. So the Lord opened his eyes, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. What he sees is that their enemies are surrounded. The enemy that surrounds them are actually themselves surrounded by a far more powerful and fiery and luminous force. And it turns out that the prophet's math was good after all, and that his fear was not simply, or that his his word to him, do not fear, was not simply another religious cliche, but it was grounded in absolute reality. Reality. Transcendent reality. Now, of course, for we modern readers, uh, th- this, this text, with all of its mystery and strangeness, stretches the limits of our modern imaginations, doesn't it? You know, um, in, in his brilliant book, A Secular Age, uh, the, the, the great philosopher Charles Taylor uh, s- says that the, the, the social imagination of late modern people is confined to what he calls the imminent frame. And he puts it like this. He describes the imminent frame as a constructed social space that frames our lives entirely within a natural rather than supernatural order. The imminent frame is, is the frame that many of us modern people live in where we just think about the natural, the material. He says, it is the circumscribed space of modern social imaginary that precludes transcendence. Now, you're like, that was kind of a dense statement. It is a, he is a philosopher, after all. But uh, let me give you a picture. The imminent frame... The eminent frame is simply this, it's a way of constructing reality that says all that exists is matter and nothing more. The only thing that is real that you can trust is the reality that can be taken in by your five senses. I was talking to a physicist after our first service today who uh, teaches over at Caltech. Uh, So, this this is no... Uh, This is a physics professor at Caltech. And uh, he said, you know, I I was asking him kind of about reality. I said, how much of reality can we apprehend with our five senses? And he said, only just a small sliver. And he said, if you can imagine yourself walking on a tightrope, he says, that little rope is the reality that your five senses is taking in. But there is so much more that you don't see. But in the imminent frame, the only thing that we give weight to, the only thing that we think matters, is matter. It's the stuff we can see, we can apprehend, we can put under a microscope. But what the prophet is given here is a vision that there is more to reality than what you see, that there is a reality behind the reality that you can apprehend with your five senses. And when his eyes are opened and he sees, here is what he sees. He sees that God is for him and not against him, and that the love and power of God and his luminous, fiery, angelic beings are stronger than whatever forces have marshaled against him. And listen, some of you may have come to church today just to hear this. Listen, the love of God... This reality that God is for you and not against you is stronger. It is stronger than whatever forces you feel like have marshaled themselves against you. And I know for many of us, it's many. And it feels so real. You know, the, 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 the voices in your head that say fat or ugly or no good or worthless. The voices from the culture that say you didn't amount to much because you didn't go to the right school or get the right job. You know, the voices maybe from a father growing up that said, You would never amount to anything. Loser. Like those can be strong. The voices of pain from, from the betrayals you've experienced can be real. And they can feel like, you know, the, the physiology that you, you inhabit, this body that feels afflicted with so much anxiety and depression, it feels so strong. And, and it feels like kind of the social awkwardness that you experience when you walk into a place like this, it feels also real and dominant in our imaginations and so strong. But listen, there is a stronger and a more defining reality than what you see there is a God. There is a transcendent power and love who is personal, who's called all things into being, and he is for you and not against you. And so uh, this servant is given prophetic, spiritual insight to see what he had not previously seen but look what happens next. You know, the prophet is not finished yet. And uh, the the Syrians come, and it's interesting. I I thought, you know, maybe uh, at this point, you know, the the horses and the chariots would attack, but they don't. Instead, the, the prophet prays again to God, and where before he had prayed that a servant might be given sight, now he prays that the threatening army might be struck with blindness. And that's what happens. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, please strike this people with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elijah. Now, I've read this story a dozen times you know, I grew up in church. I saw it on the flannel graph. I was kind of familiar with this story. And to be honest with you, I couldn't for the life of me when I was studying this week, I couldn't, until I was re-entering into this text, I couldn't remember what happens next. I mean, it, it's, the, the, it seems like, like kind of the nugget in this story is like this, this revelation, right, of the fiery horses and the chariots. And most of us, after we saw that, we stopped reading. We're like, I don't even know what happened next. And I think in my imagination, what happened next is as uh, this blinding light comes in and it blinds the Syrian army. And while the hills around it are surrounded with the fiery horses and chariots, I imagine that in that moment Elijah pulled out his sword and brandished, you know, his sword. And Legolas and Gimli jumped in beside him. And like Aragorn leading the army of the dead to slay the orcs. Elijah leads this luminous army to slay all the Syrians. And then the story ends. But that's actually not what happens next. I know it's shocking, right? Like, the story is like, really? What? I was turning 16 today. I thought something a little bit, <laughs> But actually, instead, uh, the, the weapons surrounding the armies are not employed at all. Instead, Elijah walks out the front door to the now blinded Syrian army, And he engages in a conversation. He says, you know, I understand you're looking for someone. You've come to the wrong place. Let me take you to the right city so that you can find the right guy that you're looking for. And Elijah said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And get this, he led them to Samaria. What is Samaria? Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Samaria was where the palace was. Samaria was where the palace guards dwelt. Samaria was where the king of Israel was. He says, let me take you Syrian soldiers right into the hands of the king you have been trying to attack, the king of Israel, and so... uh, He does that. He takes them to Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elijah said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And so the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, my father, my father, this is the moment I've been waiting for. You've brought my enemies right into my lap. Shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Notice he doesn't say it once. He says, shall I strike them down twice? He's excited. I mean, this is the army that's been attacking him. It's been invading his lands. It's been killing people in the villages. It's been burning down villages. He's like, shall I strike them down? But look at the prophet's response. He answered, you shall not strike them down. You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? It's just, the, the, the prophet says, don't kill them. Instead, give them something to eat. He says, set bread and water before them so that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And so he prepared for them a great feast. The king prepares a feast for his enemies and after they are well-fed and well-drunk, they go back home to their master. And he sent them away, and they went back to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. You know, this had to have been the weirdest day in the Syrian soldier's life. Like, they were like, they were utterly, they're like, what on earth is going on here? First we go, we thought we won, then we're blinded, and then he takes us over here, and then they feed us and send us back. What is going on here? I mean, surely what's going on here, at least this, Jesus said, love your enemies. You know, it was Dr. King who said, hate will not drive out hate, only love can do that. Only love is a powerful enough force to turn an enemy into a friend. And here they have been the recipient of love that fed them, that protected them, that cared for them, and sent them back home. And the story ends. What I want to do now as we kind of conclude our Elijah series is I want to stand back and I just want to make, uh, I, I want to draw out, I want to draw to your attention two movements that happen within this story. And I want to draw these movements out because maybe these are two movements that some of you need to take in your own life. Number one, the first movement that we see in this story is a movement from hostility to peace. You know, they say when you read a story, uh, oftentimes what you want to do is pay attention to the setting at the beginning and then the new setting at the end. And usually there's some movement in a story where where you begin is not where you end. And the drama in the middle is how you get from the beginning to the end. And what is the original setting and the new setting? Well, originally, the story begins with Syria attacking Israel. They're at war. And how does it end? Well, Syria uh, goes back home and they no longer attack. They are now at peace with Israel. It begins in hostility, it ends in peace. And what's the drama in the middle it is the mediatorial work of Elijah that calls enemies together and has them sit down and become friends when they share a meal. Here, I think Elijah is at his best being a foreshadowing. I mean, I'll I'll be the first to say, there's a lot of characters in the Bible that demonstrate a whole lot more violence than it seems Jesus is comfortable with, but not here and not now. Here, Elijah is acting as a forerunner, a foreshadowing of the true and better Elijah, whom Paul will say, he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus, in his cross-shaped love, brings peace. Jesus, who sets a table and invites enemies together at his table. And what is Jesus always doing throughout his life? He's always eating dinners with people. And he's always bringing people to his table that you wouldn't imagine would sit at the same table. I mean, he's got, he's got progressives and conservatives that are sitting at the same table. He's got fundamentalists and liberals, you know, right at the same table. And he's got, he's got people that shouldn't be together, and there they are. And at table, he is making enemies friends. Listen, let me, let me just say this. You know, there, there is hostility that exists in a lot of our lives. Maybe in all of our lives, there is some hostility. Some of you, you, you have a modicum of hostility toward people on the other side of the political aisle. And my, my goodness, are we beginning another presidential election cycle again already? And what kind of toxicity and volatility and anger And hostility is going to break out just once again in our nation that is already... What kind of divisions and hostility is going to break out in our churches already again? I mean, there's all kinds of hostility. And of course, there's hostility that exists in your home, between siblings, in the dorm, between roommates, in bed, between marriage partners. Hostility, most of us are no stranger to hostility. And listen, you know what this story teaches us? If you want hostility to continue, if you want to keep the hostility alive, follow the advice of the king of Israel. Shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? You want to keep hostility going, then keep striking them down. Strike them down with your words. Strike them down with insults and name-calling and disdain. Strike them down with ridicule. Strike them down behind their back. Strike them down to their face. Strike down the progressives. Strike down the Trump voters. Strike down them with tweets. And when you don't feel like it is within your rhetorical ability to strike them down effectively enough, turn to your favorite talk show host on news, cable TV, or in the editorial page of the New York Times and let someone else strike them down on your behalf half and feel good about yourself because of how terrible they are and how smart you and your side is. If you want hostility to continue, keep striking them down. Keep striking down your spouse. Keep striking down your siblings. Keep striking down your roommates. Keep striking people. Just keep striking them down. But if you want to move from hostility to peace, then don't strike them down Instead, do what Elijah told the king to do and invite them in. Invite them in with empathy, with understanding, with humility. Invite them into your life, to your story. Listen to them and their story. And you know what you discover about people? People are people. And most people out there are hurt and broken. And they have insecurities and fears. And they usually have some sort of story, oftentimes involving trauma and all kinds of experiences you don't know anything about, but you knew so much about them and about why they were so stupid and wrong and you didn't take time to listen. But when you sit down at a table and you share a meal with somebody and you say, tell me your story, I want to listen, all of a sudden you find that enemies can become friends around a table of hospitality and invitation and listening. isn't this what Jesus did? I mean, Jesus, I mean, the disciples, I don't don't know if you ever paid attention to this, who the disciples were. Jesus invited to his team a zealot. You know what a zealot is? A zealot was the closest thing to an Islamic fundamentalist in the first century, literally willing to resort to armed conflict in order to advance the kingdom of God. And he had that guy come alongside and join together at the same table with a tax collector. And what were they? Whereas the zealots were taking up arms against Rome, the tax collectors were in bed making a profit from Rome. And they were brought in the same team. Do you think they immediately resolved all of their conflict? You better believe they did not. But at the table of Jesus, they got to know each other better. They got to know that they were part of that sinful sea of humanity whom the Son of Man had come to seek and save. And we may be different in a lot of ways, but we are the same in this. We are more broken than we ever imagined, but we are more loved in Christ than we ever dared hope. And when that reality breaks in, it starts to form new community, new family. At the table of the Lord, God brings together... Get this, he brings together evangelicals and mainline Protestants and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. They all come together to share in that same broken body and shed blood of our Lord. Christ takes the many and brings them together as one at his table. He himself is our peace who has broken down the middle wall of hostility between us. So number one in the story, we see a move from hostility to peace that is brought about by the mediatorial work of Elijah by a go-between, by a mediator who brings these two groups together, which, of course, foreshadows the true and better mediator between the two groups of hostility, namely Jesus. There's a second movement in this text, though. The first movement is from hostility to peace, but, of course, the second movement in the text is the movement that stands at the very center of the story. It's the most interesting thing about it. It's the move from blindness to sight, You know, the the servant, the assistant to the regional prophet can only see his enemies. It's all he can see. Listen, do you realize that there are aspects of reality? Listen, there are aspects of reality not registered by your five senses. And let me just press this further. Your five senses, what you see, what you hear, how you hear, what you smell, What you touch, what you taste, your five senses are limited. And they are affected. How you take in the world is is affected by your unique particular journey you've had, and your story, and your dysfunctional family, or your healthy family. None of us has a healthy family. No, I do. I'm I'm creating one, at least. No, my kids will need therapy. They need it now. Um, Right, Lucy, I mean, come on. She's like, yeah. Please, Dad. Listen, the way you take in reality, it's limited. And we think we know so much, we think we see so much, we think we hear so much, we think we can smell so much and taste so much, but we are finite, limited humans after all. Thomas Akempis little monk back in the 13th century, wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ. I read that book 25 years ago, and I remember this one line. There was one little passage in there where he says, thinkest thou knowest much, knowest also this, that there is much which thou dost not know. (laughs) And listen, there are some things you are blind to, and sometimes we don't even see what we don't see. And so if you're going to take this journey, if you're going to experience a move from blindness to sight, maybe the prerequisite is a little bit of humility, a recognition there is some stuff I don't know that I think I know. There's some stuff I don't see, but I think I see. And out of that posture of humility, maybe to fall on your knees like Elijah and say, Lord, open my eyes. And I wonder if you, if I might have the courage to just go to God and say, God, Help me to see what I don't see. Or put it like this. Some of you, you, you've got areas in your own life that maybe are a little bit of a mess. You're caught in a rut, in a habit. You're getting in your own way, and we see it. We see the, the loop in your head, the way you're processing life, and it's obvious to everyone around you that the, the, the stuff that's leading you to feel so negative all the time about yourself and the world and, and whatnot, like, we see it. And, and maybe the next step after you've prayed and said, God, help me to see, maybe you could go to somebody else, maybe just expand it behind someone else, maybe go to three or four different people who love you more than anyone else and ask them this simple question, Is are there some things that I need to see that I'm not seeing? You know, I think it's his problem or it's her problem and I'm not the issue. Open yourself up. Is there something I need to see that I don't see? It's the church's problem. Is there something that I need to see that I don't see? The first place you need to go if you're going to move from blindness to sight is a humble posture of openness. God, help me to see things I'm not seeing. But here's something else that's also true. With the eyes you do have to see, sometimes you're blinded because you are focused on the wrong things. In fact, we could put it like, you're fixated on the wrong things. Uh, we could put it like this. Um, you know, sometimes we're fixated on all of the wrong things. You know, there, there's a, a character in uh, the, the Paul Bunyan, or John Bunyan's uh, book, Pilgrim's Progress. You know Pilgrim's Progress? Okay. If you don't know it, over Thanksgiving break, you have a reading assignment. Read *Pilgrim's Progress*. It's an allegory written hundreds of years ago that's been a classic um, of the Christian life. There's a character in *Pilgrim's Progress*. They're all allegorical. 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 Whose name is the Muckraker? The Muckraker. There's a scene where the muckraker who's down, and the muckraker's job, of course, is to rake the muck. And so they're always looking down, and they're looking down at the muck. The muck is the junk. It's the smelly stuff. It's the crap. You know, like They're raking the muck. And there's a scene where the muckraker the muck is just looking down, fixated only on the muck. And meanwhile, standing in front of him is a celestial being with a crown for him. But he cannot see it, because his eyes are fixed on the wrong thing. And listen, maybe for some of us, the reason why our lives, we, we, we feel stuck, we feel in a rut, maybe part of it is that you are fixated on the wrong thing. The problem's real. You know, what they did to you, your hurt, your pain, what you've endured is real. Name that, call that out. But listen, if that's where you stay, you're never gonna move forward. You've got to learn how to lift your eyes up to a truer and better reality than the stuff around you, than the muck around you, than the muck you're in. And lift your eyes up and see this more beautiful truth that there is, there, there is a transcendent reality. There is grace. There is hope. There is power that is broken into this world and you have access to it. Now, perhaps... Perhaps you might think, well, like, okay, if Elijah could be here today and could pray over me and I could just open my eyes and I could see some fiery horses and chariots, I mean, wouldn't that be cool? Like, here you are, you're surrounded by, your boss once again comes into your office, the teacher is breathing down your neck again, Uh, your siblings are, you know, Insulting you again, the the voices in your head of negativity are coming at you again. If you could just lift up your eyes and you could see fiery horses and fiery chariots breaking in, wouldn't that feel so much better? You're just like God. Should, you know, if only if only the invisible, this transcendent reality, could be made visible to me. If only what I cannot see, namely your power and your love, could, could break in and become flesh and blood and real in front of me. Friends, the transcendent reality of God, that transcendent, eternal, omnipotent love, the ocean of infinite love and existence of God has broken in. The invisible has become visible for you and me, and it's way, way better and more powerful than fiery horses and chariots. The invisible God has made himself visible in the person of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. No one has seen God at any time, but the only God who is at the Father's side he has fully disclosed him to us. You say, what do I do? You know, like, can I be sure that, 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 you know, that the enemies around me, all of this darkness that I'm feeling that I'm in, like, is there something stronger than that? Yes, look at the crucified Son of God. Look at God's love incarnate among you, giving himself fully and un- un- unreservedly on your behalf. And then you'll stand back and you'll say, what? shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his only Son, how shall he not freely give us all things through him? For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May the Spirit of God break into this place. May He open our eyes afresh to see the beauty of all of that transcendent, infinite love. And may that be the reality on which we ultimately pivot our whole life off of. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now, and we thank you, God, for the way in which you have revealed yourself through your word and through the very particular, specific narratives of Elijah and Elisha. Thank you, God, for the way in which the stories of this ancient prophet, from a time so remote from our own, so removed from our own, God has found such traction and such relevance in our lives, And God, we just ask that the way in which you have disclosed yourself to us through these narratives and the way you have more specifically disclosed yourself to us in your son, Jesus, the one to whom these narratives have always been pointing. God, would you put all of this truth, all of this revelation deep in our hearts God, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear the beautiful truth of your goodness, your fidelity, your love? And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, in whom the invisible God has become visible and knowable among us. Amen.